This morning we're going to dive in to 1 John chapter 5, and this will be our last Sunday in 1 John. Next Sunday we'll tackle probably 2nd and 3rd John together. They're both little one-chapter books. Um, So this morning we'll start, um, we'll actually get a running start at chapter 5. We're going to back up a couple of verses into chapter 4. Because the beginning of chapter 5 is just a continuation of the thought in chapter 4. Now, last week in chapter 4, John talked about loving extensively. He talked about love. And he gave five reasons why a Christian will show love. And we're not going to go back through those again. But now in chapter 5, the phrase, we know, is a key phrase. We'll see it repeated in verse 2, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. There are several certainties that we find in this chapter 5 of 1 John. We know what a Christian is. We know who Jesus is. We know how to pray with confidence. We know how a Christian acts. And finally, we know the truth. And John will lay each of these certainties out for us. So we're going to start in 1 John 4, verse 20. We're going to read through those two verses and then into chapter 5. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 1 of chapter 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This makes all believers brothers and sisters in Christ, as we're well aware of. It says, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. In chapter 3, John said, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Very black and white for us. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is a sign that we belong to God. This is one of the tests that John gives us for sonship. Verse 2 reads, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. In John 14, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, um, and I'll add, he did not say this to Judas Iscariot. He had already left to betray him. If you love me, keep my commandments. This idea of love being tied to keeping God's commandments is not a new thing. John isn't pulling this out of thin air. He's repeating what he heard from Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. Your love for God will be demonstrated by keeping his commandments. It then says, and his commandments are not 
burdensome. Now, growing up, I bet your mom had to nag you to brush your teeth, to comb your hair. And that's a normal thing. And as kids, we don't want to do those things. But as you grow up, maybe you find a lady that you like and start going out with her. All of a sudden, those commandments are not burdensome anymore. You want to brush your teeth for her. And you want to comb your hair. You want to look nice and presentable for her. Maybe she'll like me back. So all of a sudden, this nagging from your mom has turned into, hey, I actually want to do this. And it's not a big chore for me to do these things. It used to be burdensome, but it's no longer done out of compulsion, but willingly. And we should come to this point in our walk with Christ. And I would argue that we should come to this point relatively early on in our walk with Christ. Jesus asks us to do or not do things. You know, there are some commandments, some abstentions that we are to heed, um, and, but they shouldn't seem restrictive to us. You see, if they seem restrictive, we don't have a proper understanding of biblical separation. Because we're not separated from things. And yes, we are separated from the world, but there's something more than that. We are separated to Christ. It's not separation from, but a separation to. We want to obey his commands because we are separated unto him. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Back in chapter 2, verse 13, John writes, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You see now in chapter 5. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith is placed in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is who he claimed to be. That is the Son of God. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. What matters is the object that you place your faith in. If the object you place your faith in is strong, then that faith will have an effect. If the object that you place your faith in is weak, or even non-existent, nothing will come of that faith. You see, it is not faith by itself that saves, but it is a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there were three friends who loved to seek thrills together. And they went all over the world traveling, and they, they just loved a good adrenaline rush. One day they decided to go skydiving. I hadn't done this before, 
Now, all three of them dressed differently when they went up in the plane. And they did so based on their beliefs. They believed different things would happen when they jumped out of the plane. The first guy, you know, he thought that he was going to start flying. He was just going to take off when he jumped out of the plane. So what did he wear? A Superman suit, naturally. <coughs> the second guy believed sincerely that he was going to fly straight up when he jumped out of that plane. He wore an, an astronaut suit. The third guy sincerely held the belief that he would plummet to his death if something didn't slow him down after he jumped out of the plane. He wore a parachute. I'll ask you this. What do you think happened to these guys when they jumped out of the plane? Two splats and one parachute. You see, the two people who splatted, their faith was not placed in the right thing. Believe me, you have to have faith in something to jump out of an airplane. You have to place your faith in something. Only one placed it in the correct thing. They placed their faith in something false. All three guys had enough faith to jump out of the plane, but only one placed his faith in something true. Just like Christ, we all have faith. Even the atheist has faith. It certainly takes faith to believe that life came from non-life without any kind of intervention. It's impossible, actually. They place their faith in natural processes, and they place their faiths actually in themselves. It's a humanistic worldview. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I know, I know. It's the classic Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Many people know this. Many people know that Jesus is who we should place our faith in. And these people, some of them, unfortunately, will miss heaven by about 18 inches. It's the distance from our head to our heart. Because the knowledge is not what saves. There has to be something done in the heart about that knowledge. And you remember the, the Gnostics of John's day preaching that salvation came through knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. And this, I believe, is partly written to combat that teaching. And we'll see more that I believe is um, writing against the heresy of Gnosticism. And we know that from the writing of James that saving faith looks like something. There are actions that accompany saving faith. It's accompanied by works that flow out of that active faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in this epistle, John tells us that we have overcome 
three things through our faith in Christ. The devil, false teachers, and the world. First one, the devil. If you remember back in chapter 2, I pointed to this just earlier. John addresses the young men in the faith. He said that the word of God abides in them and that they have overcome the wicked one, talking of Satan. The declaration of the word of God from start to finish is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the declaration of the word of God. If the word of God is abiding in these young men, then they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this faith in him is how they have overcome the wicked one. So we've overcome the wicked one. We've also overcome false teachers. Uh, Just last week in chapter four, John said that children of God have overcome false teachers. That's chapter four, verse four. We have also overcome the world. And that's what our passage this morning is about. Here in chapter five, he asks a rhetorical question. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Now he's not really looking for an answer to this question. He's giving us an answer in this question. He's saying that faith in Christ as the son of God is the only way that someone can overcome the world. Verse six, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the father, the word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Verse six can be taken a couple of different ways. And commentators tend to disagree on this verse. But I'll take you through these two ways that we can look at it. And you can decide which one you think fits the scripture. Now, I will also tell you which one I think is probably the more accurate one, but both of them can actually be true. They're both true. The first way to look at it is that the baptism of water and blood both refer to Jesus's work on the cross. The water specifically referring to the water that flowed from Jesus's side when he was pierced and the blood referring to the blood that flowed from his side. So both of these, the water and the blood, refer to the cross. Now, this second viewpoint says that the baptism of water refers to Jesus's physical water baptism in the Jordan in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Okay, so that is uh, Jesus came by water. The baptism of blood refers to Jesus's baptism on the cross, the baptism of blood. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus said to James and John, you do not know what you asked. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And hear Jesus speaking of his work on the cross. 
I tend to go with this second interpretation, the second idea, that the water refers to his baptism in the Jordan and the blood refers to his baptism on the cross. Again, I'll remind you of the Gnostics and the heresy that they were pushing. They taught that the man Jesus received, quote unquote, the Christ spirit at his water baptism. And at his crucifixion, this Christ spirit departed from him. So they taught that Jesus was merely a man, but was inhabited by what they called the Christ spirit at his water baptism. Now, John points out that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism and proved to be the Son of God at the cross. He's emphatic on the point that Jesus came not only by water, but by water and blood, seeming to really call out this doctrine of the Gnostics. Jesus was the Christ throughout. There was no departing of the Christ spirit, but Jesus is simply who he says he is, the Son of God. Um, And that makes him our Savior, because if the Christ spirit departed from him, then there is no one making intercession for us in heaven. It wouldn't work. John is setting things straight. He's writing to churches in Asia Minor in this epistle, and he's setting the record straight. And that historical context is the main reason why I take that second view of verse 6. But either way, you're standing on solid ground. So don't worry too much about that. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. There is also some debate among scholars and commentators as to whether a specific chunk of seven and eight belong here. And there's just a couple of things that you do really need to know about this, um, but we'll leave out the gritty details of it this morning. First, let's find this contested chunk, okay? If you look in your Bible, and if you have New King James, you can follow along easily with me. The words from in heaven in verse 7 to on earth in verse 8, is the contested chunk. So that's what we're talking about here. And this is called the Johannine comma. And you'll hear that term. You can search that term if you want to look more into it. Uh, But that is what scholars refer to this piece of scripture as. Now, you may have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that this piece of scripture is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Well, When we're talking about ancient manuscripts, we have to remember that older is not always better. Okay? The chunk is quoted by several notable figures earlier than it supposedly showed up in the manuscripts. 
they date it showing up used to be around the 14th century. Then they moved it back to around the 8th century. Uh, and now there's evidence that it's even a little bit before that, that it showed up. But these people were quoting it even before those dates. And I'll, I'll take you through a few of them. Cyprian of Carthage in 250 AD, Priscillian and Audacius Clarus, who were Spanish bishops, in 385 AD. Many African bishops in the 4th century quoted this in arguments against Arianism. Cassidorus in 480 AD, and it's also in the Latin manuscript R, dated about 100 years before Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. Um, and you can look all of this up if you'd like. Without the Johannine comma, there is a Greek grammatical problem. Okay, And this is actually what I think to be the most compelling evidence that it belongs in our scripture. There's a Greek grammatical error without it. If you remove it, the genders of the nouns don't agree. And in Greek, the genders of the nouns must agree uh, to be grammatically correct. But when it's left alone, there's a flow and there's no problem. Now, this is the important part. Okay, so I know we went kind of downhill there. But I'm bringing you back up, and this is what we need to focus on. No matter whether you take that or leave it, this passage is affirming the Trinity, the Godhead. We see the three aspects of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity all agreeing as one. And what do they agree on? They agree in unison that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 6 started our section that tells us that we know who Jesus is. And we know by the witness of the Spirit. The Father witnesses of this fact. The Spirit witnesses of this fact. And Jesus testifies of himself. No matter where you take, take or leave verses 7 or 8, this is a strong passage affirming the Trinity. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Now, if is in the class condition, and it should be understood as saying since. Since we receive the witness of men, and boy, do we. You flip on the TV at night, you may turn the news on, and you may believe what they're telling you is true. That's the witness of man. If you don't watch the news, you may watch the weather. Flip on the weather channel. You believe what the weatherman is telling you is going to be what happens, even though most of the time he's wrong. So we readily receive the witness of man. 
Even our entire judiciary system is based on the witness of men. It's actually quite disturbing to see how unreliable the witness of man is. Eyewitnesses. We have evidence that they could be unreliable. And it makes sense because our memories have a tendency to change without us knowing it. Let's say you were a witness to a car crash, but you didn't actually see the whole thing. You just saw the car, you heard a noise, you turned, there's a car in the air flipping. So what your brain does is it rewinds that and it makes you think that you understood what what actually happened there. Uh, It's like if I put up my fingers like this, what do you see? You probably see a square or a rectangle, even though there's not one there. Your brain automatically connects with the pieces that are missing. Uh, And this idea is based on Gestalt's principle of closure. Um, We're not going to get into that too much, but the idea is that your brain will deceive you. The witness of man will deceive you. Um, If we receive the witness of man, since we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. Now, and we'll look at the witness of God. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. In verse 10, he who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. Interesting. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. He has the witness in himself. And we know that the witness refers to the Holy Spirit. He who does not believe God. You know, there is truth and there is fallacy. We can't all believe something sincerely and get to heaven. And there is that myth that's going around the world that as long as you hold a belief sincerely, that all paths lead to the same God. And that is just cannot be further from the truth. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. God has placed his witness in us. And if we deny that witness, we call him a liar. And this is the testimony. So everything is building up to this in these last few verses. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. This is what the Holy Spirit bears witness to in our hearts. And verse 12 is as plain as it gets. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. If nothing so far that we've read in 1 John gets through to you, let this verse get through to you. When John was writing this, he was toward the end of his life. 
and he didn't live an easy life. In fact, towards the end, he was exiled to an island called Patmos. I have no doubt that he felt no need to sugarcoat things as he drew near the end of his own life. And he's not softening the blow here for us. He's not making this message seeker-friendly. He's simply laying out the truth. And I completely respect John for that. There's a beauty in the simplicity with which John lays out this truth for us. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. If you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, tells us why John wrote his Gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So again, some themes are you know, going together here already. But he wrote his gospel so that unbelievers would believe. He writes his epistle for a different reason. Now he's addressing those people who already believe and he's giving them assurance of their salvation that they have received and he's encouraging them to continue their walk with Christ, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In this epistle, John spells out five reasons that he wrote it. We remember way back in chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote it that you also may have fellowship with us and with God. The very next verse in chapter 1, verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Our lifestyle should change when we're saved. Sin shouldn't be our lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. John was writing to make the church aware of some doctrinal fallacies that were going around. He wanted to correct the record. And of course, Gnosticism was one of those. And now here in chapter five, he's wrapping things up. And he tells us, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Some Christians and some Christian denominations teach that you can never really know if you're saved. John says that we can know if we are saved. We can have that assurance. Charles Spurgeon said that the Christian doesn't need assurance to be saved but he does have to have assurance to be effective. 
Think about that for a second. The Christian doesn't need assurance to be saved. You can be saved whether you know it or not, whether you're sure of that or not. But you do have to be sure of your destination to be effective for Christ. John teaches that we can know if we are saved. And he gives us tests to determine whether we are born of God. Those tests are the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of truth. And we've looked at each one of these as we've come through this epistle. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, verse 14 brings us to this area of our text this morning that tells us we know how to pray with confidence. And we do. Confidence means freedom of speech. We have freedom of speech when we go to our Father in prayer. We are one of his children. You know, Joe Foch said something um, that I can't relate to yet, but maybe one day I will. Uh, He said that he always leaves his door open to his office because he brings his kids to work with him uh, quite a bit. So he wants them to grow up with the idea that they have unrestricted access to their father. Isn't that a cool concept? He admits, yeah, it gets kind of noisy in the office sometimes, but he wants his children to know that as a child, you are able to come to your father. You're able to lay things at his feet, to ask him about things, to ask him for things. And God loves it when we exercise our free access to him. He doesn't want any restrictions between us and him. Now, this confidence should not be taken in an irreverent sense. This confidence is more of a freedom of speech, but it can be taken as boldness. We just don't want uh, this to be misinterpreted as meaning that we can just go um, irreverently to him. There is always a certain respect that we have for God. Now, pay attention to this qualification here. According to his will. Is it bad to ask God for things that we want? No, it's not. Now, do pay attention to your motives for asking, but God wants you to bring your entire life to him. He wants that open line of communications. Now, This is a difficult verse for many, many people. And I know some of those people. You may be one of those people. You might have prayed for someone or something that you believed to be in God's will. And he might not have answered the way that you thought he should. 
and it may have taken a long time. Maybe you're still struggling with this. Why did God take them? Why did God not heal them the way that I think he should? Certainly, this man, this woman, would have been a great tool on the earth for God's kingdom. Maybe what they do would have furthered God's kingdom. And we pray thinking that we are praying God's will. Sincerely. But maybe God didn't answer your prayer the way that you thought he would. Eventually, we should come to accept that God's will is so far beyond our own. Um, Even if we knew why he took someone, why he didn't heal someone, would we actually be able to understand it? If we knew his reasoning, would we even be able to comprehend it? I think that's worth considering. We come to accept that God's will is better than ours. And his knowledge is so far beyond my own that I don't feel that I can um, interfere with what he's got going on. Chuck Missler said that prayer is God's way of enlisting us in his plan. And I love it put that way. Prayer is God's way of enlisting us into his plan. It's not for us to get what we want. It's for him to get us on board with his program. Prayer is effective at changing my heart. When I take things to God, He starts to work in my heart. Um, Of course, prayer is powerful. You may say, well, isn't it the will of God that all men should be saved? So what if I pray for that? God, I pray that you would save all men. The Bible tells us that that is his will. In 1 Timothy 2.4, the will of God is that all men should be saved. But here's the thing. God created man with free will. We are self-determinant beings, just like he is. And he will not violate a person's free will. So in this case, when we look at it, it makes more sense. Because if a man chooses to reject Christ, God is not going to put him in a chokehold and say, you must accept. That's not how he created us, and he respects our choices. It's only an illusion of choice if the person who gives you a choice doesn't respect the choice that you've made. If my mom asks me if I want a cookie from the cookie jar, I say yes, and she said, no, you can't have one. Well, I never really had a choice in the first place. It takes the respect of the choice that is made. God respects us. And as such, he will not violate our free will. So if a man decides to reject Jesus, God is not going to force that man to accept him. However, it is his will that all men be saved. He won't violate their free choice. So now you ask, 
well, is there even a point in praying for people that are lost or praying for the brethren who are going astray? Yes, absolutely. Pray for those people to be saved. Pray for a change of heart. Pray that those people's hearts would be opened to receiving Jesus. That is what we should be praying for. That their hearts should be open to receiving the gospel. And we'll talk more about this in just a second. When we pray according to his will, he hears us. We know that. And what a wonderful place to be, praying in God's will. And that's where all of us should want to be. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If you are asking in line with his will, it is his pleasure to give you those things. It's not not through selfish motives, but through his will. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, there is an important distinction in verse 16 that we need to make. It says, if he sees his brother sinning. It doesn't say if he heard through the grapevine that his brother was in sin. There needs to be a firsthand knowledge of the sin that's going on. If you have that firsthand knowledge of a brother or a sister in Christ that is currently in sin, Pray for him. Pray for her. Lift them up in prayer. But John is clear that there is a sin leading to death. What is this sin leading to death? Or in other words, sin unto death. There's a couple of ways that commentators like to look at this. The first is that this sin unto death is the unpardonable sin. And this is the sin of rejecting Christ while we are on earth. Of course, once someone passes away, their eternal destiny is locked in. And there's nothing we can pray for them. There's nothing we can do to change that eternal destiny once their choice has been made. Every sin is forgivable in God's eyes except for the final rejection of his son. But John writes that we shouldn't pray about this sin. That can be confusing to us. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray for people to be saved? Or that we shouldn't pray for wayward believers to return to the sheepfold? Not at all. That's not what he's saying. A man hasn't committed the unpardonable sin until he's passed away. And at that point, there's no need for us to pray anymore because his eternal destiny is sealed. But while he is living, he has not yet 
committed the unpardonable sin. That is when our prayers are effective. While the man is still living, we have to push into prayer. We have to lift him or her up to God. James 5.19 reads, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So yes, pray for those who are lost and going astray. That's the first way that we look at it. The second way that we can look at it is similar. But this is more general, I will say. The sin leading to death could be referring to any sin that leads to the person's death. Uh, In a more general sense, again. Once a person is dead, there's no point in praying for them. And they've moved on to something either far better or far worse than the world. And they have literally moved on to a different domain. This is why when someone passes away, we turn the focus of our prayers from that person to for for their healing, to the family of that person, to the family of the deceased, because they are the ones who can be impacted now. We pray for their comfort, that they would see the love of Christ in the situation that they're in. But we can still pray for those lost and going astray while they are still here. And that is something that every one of us as Christians should be doing. Now, whichever way you take it, this passage is a powerful passage in support for intercessory prayer. In other words, praying for other people. And that is the main point that I want you to take from this. We should be praying for others. Now, verse 18 takes us into this, these just two verses telling us that we know how a Christian acts. Verses 18 and 19. And verses 18, 19, and 20, John is going to wrap up with a triplet of things that we know. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we know how a Christian acts. It says, whoever is born of God, and the idea is, is not habitually in sin. Now, after the semicolon here, we know that Whoever is born of God does not sin, semicolon. After that semicolon in verse 18, um, but he who has been born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. He who has been born of God may refer to Jesus, the only begotten son, or to the born-again believer. This verse makes more sense 
reading it as Jesus being the one who keeps the believer. I don't keep myself from the wicked one. I don't have that power. I don't have any power over the wicked one in and of myself. All of my power comes from Christ. He's the one who keeps me. This especially makes sense when we compare it with other scriptures. Look at John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, this is Jesus talking, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave to me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus spoke these words about his disciples whom he kept. And you see this reference to the son of perdition. It's talking about Judas Iscariot who had to betray Jesus to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus kept his disciples. I'll now turn your attention to 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5. It reads, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In each of these passages, God is doing the keeping, not us. That is why I believe that verse 18 speaks of Jesus keeping the believer, and the wicked one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Um, Another way to read it is the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Now more than ever, we can see this playing out. We can see the world as it sways with the wicked one. Just flip on the news and you will see the death, the destruction, the sickness, the evil. The whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. Verse 20 tells us that we know the truth. And this is how John chooses to wrap up his first epistle, talking about the truth. We all, as Christians, know the truth, and the truth abides in us in the form of the Spirit. The Spirit is truth. The word of God is truth. We know Jesus is the word. Jesus is truth. The Trinity. The three persons of the Godhead agree as one, and they are in truth. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. We see right there in that little phrase, the three persons of the Godhead. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You see this word understanding in verse 20. An understanding, uh, this is speaking of the mind as a faculty of understanding. 
God has created us in such a way that allows us to know him, to learn about him, to understand him who is true. He's created this whole universe to be discoverable. There are so many fine-tuning elements in the universe. Our position relative to the sun and relative to other planets allows us uniquely. There's no other spot like this that we've found in the universe. Our spot in the universe allows us to discover things. We can see out into the galaxy. We can see planets that we've never seen before. We can see new stars. We were placed here to discover, and we were given the ability to understand, both understand the world around us and understand the God who created that world. And that is a beautiful thing and something that we should lean into. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What a fitting way to wrap up his epistle. Talking about truth. There's been truth. Just, it's like John has a truth bucket and he accidentally tripped and spilled it all over this letter. There is truth referenced all throughout this first epistle. And wrapping it up with a reference to the Trinity and the truth of the Godhead. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. When relating to this God, this one true God, no equal, no rival, it is important that we sanctify ourselves, keep ourselves, separate ourselves to him. Keep yourselves from idols, anything that comes between you and God. Amen. And that's where we're going to wrap up this morning, and we're wrapping up the book of 1 John. And we will come back next week ready to dig into 2 John and 3 John. And that is going to be an exciting study. They're little books, but there's a lot packed in there. We're going to unpack those. So for now, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. you.